0: The Peter Schiff Show. Today's podcast is sponsored by True Niagin. True Niacin helps fuel the cell's energy engines. It maintains cellular metabolism and even supports heart health in combination with a healthy lifestyle. And now you can save 10% on your first purchase at trueniagen.com Peter when you use the promo code Peter. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. On Tuesday, the not so dynamic duo of Jerome Powell and Janet Yellen testified before the United States Senate. Well, the two were back up on the Hill today to repeat the performance, this time before the House of Representatives. And I think the most significant difference between the opening statement that Powell made on Tuesday and the one that he made today was the conspicuous absence of any kind of warning of inflation being hotter than expected. If you remember, on Tuesday, I talked about the fact that Powell came out and basically all but admitted that the Fed was wrong and that inflation was lasting longer than they thought, that it was higher than they thought, and that if it persisted, and inflation continued to confound the Fed in its magnitude and its duration, that the Fed was standing ready to use its tools to combat it. And that really roiled the markets. It sent bonds tanking, gold went down, the dollar went up. And I think the Fed was intending on doing some damage control because Powell does not want long-term bond yields to rise because he realizes how important it is to the over-leveraged economy that rates stay low. In fact, Janet Yellen is counting on low interest rates to keep the debt affordable. And I'll get into that a bit later in today's podcast. I want to stay focused for now on Powell's comments. So on Tuesday, he basically issues this warning and there is a reaction in the market. Adverse, certainly, in the bond market from the perspective of the Fed. And now, two days later, the same Fed chairman, in his opening remarks, all of those references were removed. I found it interesting, too, that I didn't hear anybody comment on it. Nobody in the financial media mentioned the stark difference between what Powell told the Senate on Tuesday and what he told the House on Thursday. He's much more dovish today than he was back then. So why the change of heart? Well, I think the market changed his mind and he was there to kind of undo the damage in the market. And it didn't really have the effect, I don't think, that the Fed had hoped for because we didn't see a big rally in the bond market. We did see a big rally in the price of gold and gold was already up prior to, these statements being made, and it simply added to its gains after. And I'm going to talk about gold and the rest of the markets at the end of the podcast. Right now, I want to stay focused on this testimony. So I thought that was very significant, that hawkish Powell was gone and dovish Powell is back taking his place. And also, I think one of the reasons for the turnaround is is over the last couple of days, there has been a lot of talk that maybe Powell won't get reappointed. I mean, certainly Elizabeth Warren said some very, very nasty things about Powell on Tuesday. I mean, she said he was very evil and very dangerous. She's right, although I don't know about him being evil, but he certainly is dangerous, but for the wrong reasons. I mean, Elizabeth Warren has no idea why Powell is dangerous. And the reality is whoever she's going to support as his replacement is going to be far more dangerous than Powell. It's just that she doesn't appreciate the significance of the danger or really comprehend the nature of that danger. So she's completely wrong. She's criticizing him, but she's criticizing him for the wrong reasons. You know, also I want to point out if you Listen to the statements that were made both on Tuesday and today from all the Republicans. Every Republican wants to praise Jerome Powell. All the criticism of the Fed is from the Democrats. The Republicans are defending Powell. So why are they doing it? Well, number one, Powell was appointed by Donald Trump, a Republican, and Powell is considered to be a Republican. So the Republicans feel obliged to compliment him and to support Donald Trump, the president of their party who nominated him. But the other reason that they want to praise the Fed is because they want to put all the blame for any of the problems in the economy on the Democrats. So they kind of want to let the Fed off the hook. They don't want the Democrats to be able to say, hey, it's not our fault. It's the Fed's fault. The Republicans want all the blame on the Democrats. And so they completely excuse the Fed. But the reality is the Federal Reserve is the main culprit here. The Federal Reserve has acted irresponsibly and recklessly and made all sorts of mistakes under both Republican and Democratic administrations. So Powell did a bad job when Trump was president and he continues to do a bad job when Biden is president and it's damaging for the Republicans to let him off the hook especially since a lot of the Republicans are also complaining about inflation and they want to blame inflation on the Democrats and all of their new spending when the reality is it's the Federal Reserve that's been printing all this money and most of the Democrats' spending plans haven't even been enacted yet. I mean, some of them had, but the vast majority of the money they want to spend has yet to be spent. So the inflation that we're experiencing today is not a consequence of the money that the Democrats want to spend tomorrow. It's a consequence of the money that both Republicans and Democrats voted to spend in the past and the Fed's decision to monetize all the debt that was sold in order to pay for all that spending. So if the Republicans are really upset about inflation and they believe that it's not transitory, they need to be blaming the Fed. They can't let the Fed off the hook just because they want to blame everything on the Democrats because that actually makes their position less defensible. And as I've said, they already look like complete hypocrites for their opposition to an increase in the debt ceiling. Now, when they totally supported increasing the same debt ceiling, when the Republicans had the White House and both houses of Congress, they had no guts to do something about spending when they had a chance. And now they want to pretend that they actually have the guts to do it when they don't have a chance. This is all politics, as is their failure to point fingers at Powell. Now, the Democrats, of course, they want to blame Powell for stuff because they don't want the American public to think any problems in the economy are their fault because the problems are happening on their watch. So they do want to blame problems on Powell. And again, Powell is a Republican appointed by a Republican. So that way they can blame the problems on Trump because if Powell is doing a bad job, it's because Trump selected him. So again, with all of this talk about Powell maybe not being renominated, part of this too is stemming from a controversy regarding potential insider trading from a couple of FOMC members who by the way are among the more hawkish members of the Fed. Again, not really hawkish, so let me rephrase that. Among the less dovish members of the Fed because there are no hawks, it's just degree of dovishness. So two of the lesser dovish Governors are the ones that are caught up in this controversy. And so they are stepping down and they will obviously be replaced by bigger doves. So, this again argues for more money printing, more inflation, and the Fed doing nothing about fighting inflation. And by the way, I don't have enough facts on the allegations of insider trading, you know whether or not these Fed governors were trading in the S&P or the muni bond market, I don't think any of that is really problematic unless, of course, you can actually show that the trades were strategically timed around market moving statements that were made by either the Fed or one of these particular governors, because obviously the markets pay attention to what the Fed has to say. And so if a Fed governor put on a trade in the S&P or in a market and then made a market moving statement immediately following that position that was favorable to that position and then took profits then I would have a problem. But if it's simply they're buying the s and I mean, everybody's buying the S&P. Everybody knows the Fed is going to be easy. It's not a secret. It's not like they're pretending, right? I mean, they're telling everybody that rates are going to stay at zero. The only thing they're pretending is that one day they may eventually raise them. But most of the information is widely known and everybody is buying stocks and buying everything. I mean, it's an everything bubble. So many people are participating. So I think it would be strange for the Fed governors themselves not to participate in the same bubble as everybody else. It would only be problematic if they actually traded around their own announcements that they would know in advance might move the markets and then they took advantage of those short-term fluctuations for their own personal profit, then I think I would have a big problem with that and something should be done. But I think basically for appearance purposes, these guys are stepping down. And of course, Powell, as the head of the Fed, he gets the blame. And so this is another reason that the Democrats might use as an excuse not to reappoint him. And I think Powell is ultra-sensitive to the jeopardy that his second term is now in. And that's another reason that he probably softened his tone. And when he came back to Capitol Hill today, he wasn't talking about inflation being higher than they thought. He wasn't talking about having to do anything to fight inflation, which again, just further supports my conclusion just following the Tuesday talk is that the Fed is all bark and no bite. The Fed is not going to raise rates The Fed is not going to do anything to fight off inflation. In fact, look at some of the economic data that came out earlier in the day. This is before the hearing began. We got the most recent data on jobless claims, and we had a big jump last week. We're up at 351,000. And the consensus was for a pretty big drop back to 335,000 in the most recent week. But instead of falling back down, claims increased yet again. They grew by another 11,000 to 362,000 in the most recent week. So the unemployment numbers are going in the wrong direction. Unemployment is rising and Powell has certainly made it clear that the employment situation is key not only to some future rate hikes but to the beginning of a taper. Well, the Fed is not going to start to taper if the unemployment rate is rising, if more people are losing their jobs. Then look at the data we got from the Chicago Purchasing Managers Index. That was at 66.8 in the prior month. It was expected to decline a bit to 65.3. Instead, it declined all the way down to 64.7. That was below even the low estimate for the consensus range. So you got weakening economic data while you got strengthening unemployment claims. How is the Fed going to taper against that backdrop? How is the Fed going to fight inflation against that backdrop? It is stagflation. We have a combination of increasing inflation and a weakening economy. And given the choice between fighting inflation and trying to prop up the economy and save jobs, which is what the Fed thinks it's doing by creating inflation. Obviously, inflation is gonna take a backseat to the economy, especially when Powell's renomination hangs in the balance. What do the Democrats in charge want the Fed to do? Well, that's obvious, and so Powell has to play ball if he wants another term. True Niogen helps fuel the cell's energy engines maintains cellular metabolism, and even supports heart health in combination with a healthy lifestyle. With 13 published human clinical studies and backed by Nobel Prize winners, TruNigin is a supplement that's clinically proven to boost NAD levels, an essential coenzyme required for cellular energy and repair. And now you can save 10% on your first purchase at trueniagen.com slash Peter using the promo code Peter. That's trueniagen.com slash Peter. Use promo code Peter to save 10% on your first purchase. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. But let me talk a little bit about some of the topics that were discussed at this hearing. And of course, there really is no reason to have these hearings because nothing substantive is actually said, because all this is is an opportunity for Republicans and Democrats to try to score political points against the opposition. So the Democrats are trying to get Powell or Yellen to blame the Republicans for something and the Republicans are trying to get Powell or yelling to blame the Democrats. Nobody is really blaming the Fed for the real problems that they're creating. And there is no real substantive discussion about any of the solutions. So the whole thing is a complete waste of time, but I'm going to discuss it anyway. In particular, Janet Yellen got a lot of questions from Republicans about the debt. And again, this is the same debt that Republicans helped to make much larger when Trump was the president. The Democrats, of course, aren't questioning Yellen at all about the debt because they want to spend a lot more money and make the debt bigger. So it's just the Republicans who want to pretend that they care about the debt now that they're no longer in a position to do anything about it. And so they threw a lot of questions at Yellen, trying to get her to kind of admit to how high a debt would be a problem because she mentions that the debt held by the public is 105% of GDP. Of course, she ignores all the debt held by government agencies like the Social Security trust funds, right? If you actually look at all the debt, you're looking at a debt to GDP of just over 125%. And then you also need to look at all the states and municipalities that are drawing off the same tax base. But I talked about that on my last podcast. In fact, one of the congressmen asked Janet Yellen about Japan's, debt to GDP, basically to stress how much higher it was than ours. Because Japan, it's something like 250% debt to GDP. And Yellen indicated that, you see, that's not a problem. Everything is fine in Japan. They've got no problem with having all that debt. They still have really low interest rates. So if Japan can have all that debt and not have a crisis, well, the same thing is true about the United States. Well, first of all, there are a lot of people that don't think the economy in Japan is all that great. In fact, it would be a lot better if it weren't for all of this debt. But of course, nobody on that committee, and certainly not Janet Yellen, wanted to point out the sharp difference between the debt that the Japanese have and the debt that the Americans have, because the Japanese yen is not the world's reserve currency. Oh, and by the way, the Japanese are running trade surpluses, not trade deficits. The Japanese are not dependent on the world to finance Japanese government debt. The Japanese have a very high domestic savings rate. And so domestic savers are able to finance Japanese government. Meanwhile, the Japanese government owns a lot of U.S. treasuries. The Japanese government is the largest creditor. So a lot of that debt that the Japanese had was incurred loaning money to the U.S. government. So the Japanese government has all of these bonds that it can cash in to pay down that debt because the Japanese government may owe the Japanese people, but the U.S. government owes the Japanese government. The US is not sitting on a stockpile of Japanese government bonds. The Japanese government doesn't owe the US government. It's the US government that owes the Japanese government. But again, the bigger difference is that Americans are dependent on the kindness of strangers. We need foreigners to buy our bonds. And that puts us in a far more vulnerable position than the Japanese. And so just because they can have a certain level of debt in Japan without a crisis doesn't mean that we can do the same thing here. And by the way, it also doesn't mean that the Japanese aren't going to be dealing with their own debt crisis at some point in the future It's just that I think the Japanese have a much longer rope with which to hang themselves. The problem is nobody really knows how short our rope is, but pretty soon we'll be dangling at the end of it. But Yellen would not commit to a dollar level or a percent of GDP at which she thought that the high debt would be a problem. She did say that the debt we have today is not a problem and it is not irresponsible or reckless. And again, she is hiding behind the low debt service cost as the reason that it's not a concern. She keeps saying that we can handle all this debt because interest rates are so low and she expects them to stay low for the foreseeable future. But nobody is really putting the question to her. What if she's wrong? What if these economists who expect low rates are wrong? A lot of times things happen that you don't expect. What if we're on the verge of moving from a low interest rate environment to a high interest rate environment? What if it's not inflation that's transitory, but what if it was the low interest rate environment? That was transitory. And now it's over and we are moving into not even a normal rate environment, but a high rate environment, which would make more sense. You know, pendulums tend to swing in both directions. And if we've gone from really, really low rates, chances are we're going to swing over to really, really high rates. We're not just going to rest over in the middle, especially if you look at what's going on with inflation. Look at what's going on with prices everywhere. Again, not just in the U.S., but all across the world, we're seeing elevated inflationary pressures. So it's not just in the U.S. that interest rates are going to be rising. They're going to be rising all across the globe. And this is going to be the biggest problem for the biggest debtors, and that's the United States. We have been the primary beneficiary of these artificially low interest rates. We're also going to be more adversely affected by increasing rates. So we were the biggest gainers when rates were low. We're going to be the biggest losers when rates are high. And Janet Yellen doesn't even contemplate the possibility of that situation. And again, the Republicans are really letting her off the hook and not really driving this point home. And they're also excusing Powell because all of their questions about the size of the debt are directed to Yellen, again, because they want to let the Fed off the hook. They should be questioning Powell about why he is monetizing all of this debt. Why doesn't he set back and allow interest rates to rise? Because if the Fed stopped buying U.S. government bonds, interest rates would rise and that would force the U.S. government to act responsibly. It's the fact that Powell is giving Congress and the White House an easy way out. All this money printing, all this debt monetization is what is artificially suppressing interest rates, lulling the Democrats, the president and Congress into this false sense of complacency that they can always count on those low rates to make these enormous deficits affordable. But the minute rates are no longer low, if they ever moved even close to a real rate, then there would be no possibility. Of servicing this debt, let alone repaying it. Now, since I'm on the topic of repaying the debt, during today's testimony, there was a lot of talk, particularly among Democrats, about what would happen if the debt ceiling is not raised. I mean, it's going to be a catastrophe. Everybody admits Janet Yellen talked about how big this catastrophe would be if we don't raise the debt ceiling. Well, just raise it. I mean, the Democrats are saying we want the Republicans to vote to raise it too. Well, but if it's really going to be that catastrophic, why not put politics aside? Just raise rates. In fact, that's the point the Republicans are making. Look, if it's really going to be that catastrophic, just raise the debt ceiling. I mean, put politics aside and raise the debt ceiling. I mean, that's the point the Republicans are making, that the Democrats can raise the debt ceiling whenever they want and so stop making it a political situation by trying to drag the Republicans into it. But of course, the Republicans are also making it political by not wanting any part of raising the debt ceiling this time, even though they participated in raising the debt ceiling in the past. And they certainly voted for a lot of the spending that makes raising the debt ceiling necessary. But one thing in particular that was discussed quite a bit today, as opposed to on Tuesday, was the possibility or probability, basically, of default. What the Democrats were saying was that if we don't raise the debt ceiling, the U.S. is going to default on its treasury bonds. And they were talking about the implications of a government default and what it would have on the market on interest rates. And Janet Yellen was talking about how catastrophic this would be because it would increase borrowing costs because now the U.S. Treasury market would no longer be considered risk-free. And so the interest rate that the U.S. government would have to pay to borrow would be higher and that would influence interest rates throughout the economy. And so mortgage rates would be higher, credit card rates would be higher. So this is why the Democrats said we must increase the debt ceiling to avoid a default on the debt. Now, again, they had these discussions in the past, and I've always pointed out how ridiculous and dangerous such a discussion is. In fact, it is part of my stand-up routine that I got second place for in uh, New York Funniest Reporter. So in fact, I don't want to use some of the jokes that I used in my stand-up because I don't want to give them away, because I want to encourage people, if you haven't watched that YouTube video, make a point. When you're finished listening to today's podcast, go to YouTube and type in Peter Schiff stand-up and watch my routine. It's only 10 minutes. It's funny. But it's, again, extremely relevant because they're having the exact same discussions now about the debt ceiling and why they need to raise it to avoid default as they did back then. But what I pointed out then and what I'm going to point out again now is when the U.S. government admits that if we can't borrow more money that we're going to default and not repay the money we've already borrowed, That amounts to an official admission that we are running a Ponzi scheme because the U.S. government is not reassuring our creditors that they're going to get paid, that if we can't borrow more money, well, the U.S. government will cut spending on other things. We will raise taxes. We will do what it takes to pay our obligations. The U.S. government, the Secretary of the Treasury, Janet Yellen, is telling all of the people who loaned us money that if the U.S. can't go even deeper into debt by borrowing even more money than if you loaned us money in the past, you're not going to get paid. That is a classic Ponzi scheme. Ponzi schemes are defined by paying old investors by getting money from new investors. And that is what Yellen is saying. We will only pay off our bondholders if we can find new people to loan us the money to do it. So as long as the U.S. government can find another sucker willing to loan it money, it will repay the loans that prior suckers already made. But if we run out of suckers, then the suckers who are currently holding on to U.S. Treasuries are the bag holders. They're the greatest fools because we ran out of fools. See, normally you would expect that If the Fed is running a giant Ponzi scheme, they're not going to talk about it, right? Because if people find out it's a Ponzi scheme, why would they want to participate? I mean, the reason that Bernie Madoff had so many clients was because they didn't know it was a Ponzi scheme. If they knew it was a Ponzi scheme, he wouldn't have got any money. But here you've got the U.S. government admitting that they're running a far bigger Ponzi scheme than Bernie Madoff, and yet nobody cares. Well, at some point, somebody is going to care. They're going to realize that the only reason there may be a default if we don't raise the debt ceiling is because it's a Ponzi scheme. And so why would anybody want to hold on to U.S. Treasuries? They won't. And that is the real risk. The risk is not that we're not going to raise the debt ceiling because we raise that all the time, and we're gonna raise it. The risk is we keep raising the debt ceiling and our creditors wake up to the Ponzi nature of what's going on and they dump their US treasuries, they dump their US dollars, and then the only source of funding for the government is the Fed and massive money printing, and that's where you have the runaway inflation. So we're gonna default either way. We're either gonna default because we can't borrow anymore or we're gonna default through inflation because nobody will lend to us anymore. Another interesting discussion, though, that happened today had to do with the new requirement in the tax legislation that requires all banks to report to the IRS all transactions as low as $600. So, anybody that writes a check through their checking account, if it's $600 or more, the bank is going to have to report that specific check to the US government. Now, none of the Democrats have a problem with this. The Republicans all have a problem with it, and rightly so, but they're only focusing on one aspect of it. And I'm not going to diminish the significance of that. I agree with the Republicans 100% that this is an invasion of privacy, that the government doesn't have to know about every $600 check that everybody writes. I mean, who knows what the government is gonna do with all this personal information about every taxpayer because you know, there's a lot of checks that you write where the payee, the person that you're writing the check to, or maybe what you wrote in the memo of the check, there's some information there that you don't necessarily want the whole world to know, but now the government's gonna have that information. And the dangerous thing about the government having that information is you have no idea how they're going to use it or misuse it in the future. You know, especially as the US government gets increasingly more tyrannical and more oppressive, and if the public tries to resist, well the more information the government has on the public, the easier it is for the government to quash any resistance among the people to their tyranny. So it makes perfect sense that Americans would want to have some degree of vigilance in empowering the government to get even more personal information on every single taxpayer. And I don't think the Republicans did a good enough job of pointing that out. They just simply talked about it from a privacy perspective, but from a civil liberty perspective, giving the U.S. government All this extra information about everybody gives it more power to control everybody and to punish people who are not doing things that they want them to do. But there's one aspect of this $600 minimum that even the Republicans did not pick up on. And they should have because it would have scored a lot of points, I think, with anybody who is watching the hearing. But the Democrats are pretending that the stepped up enforcement, because also part of the same legislation that includes this $600 requirement, there's also a lot of extra money for enforcement. More IRS agents, more spying on the American public, presumably to close this gigantic gap, right? The Democrats keep claiming they're losing all this money because people are cheating on their taxes. And they want to close this tax gap with greater enforcement. And in fact, Janet Yellen even admitted several times that this requirement of $600 check surveillance, forcing banks to tell the government about every $600 check that gets written. This is part of that effort to close that tax gap. Okay. So the Democrats are claiming that all this is about getting the millionaires and the billionaires. They're the tax cheats that they want to go after. They're going to close this so-called gap by really cracking down on the millionaires and billionaires. Well, if that is the case, what do $600 checks have to do with it? How many billionaires are evading their taxes in $600 increments? Is it really necessary if you're going after the richest people in the country to know about every $600 check? It doesn't make sense at all. The only way this makes sense is if the real target of all this extra audits, the real way that the Democrats plan on closing the tax gap is by taking out of the hides of average Americans middle-income and lower-income people. Those are the ones who are writing $600 checks, not the billionaires. And if people are evading taxes in $600 increments, these are ordinary people. So the fact that the US government, the IRS, wants all this information on small checks is because they're gonna be targeting their enforcement on the working class, small business owner, average American. So this is a classic government bait and switch. See, they sucker the population into accepting a bigger government, another program or another tax, because they claim it's going to be aimed at the rich. We're only going after the rich. We're going after the millionaires and the billionaires. So give us this extra power because we promise we won't use it against you. We're going to use it against these rich, powerful people. But of course, once they sucker the public into accepting that, well, then they're screwed, right? That's why you never want to get into bed with the government because that's what the government is saying. The government's telling the middle class and the poor, get into bed with us, right? Because we're going to go after the millionaires and the billionaires. Just come in this bed and we're going to get these fat cats. Well, you get into bed with the government and you're the one that ends up getting screwed because that's who they're going after. Remember, these are the same Democrats who won't even take away the carried interest exemption for the millionaires and the billionaires. The hedge fund managers, they came away unscathed. Right? All the big talk about going after wealth and going after these loopholes And this one glaring loophole that everybody talks about should be ended. And even I agree. I mean, I want to get rid of the income tax entirely. But if we're going to have the income tax, we shouldn't have a lower rate for the income of hedge fund managers than for the income of everybody else. Yet that tax break remains because they have that much influence up on Capitol Hill. Well, clearly, if they can prevent The loss of that deduction, they're not going to allow the IRS to run roughshod over their tax returns either. The people who have to worry about more audits and paying even higher taxes are the middle class and probably the working poor. But it's unfortunate that none of the Republicans picked up on this fact. Maybe, you know, if somebody has any friends in Congress, if they're listening to this podcast, they can clue them in because I think they can make a big deal out of this and really shine a light on the truth, right, of what the Democrats are really planning, what they've really got up their sleeve for taxpayers with this enhanced IRS. No, there's a third negative aspect of the $600 requirement that nobody is talking about. So in addition to the privacy, in addition to revealing the government's true intentions when it comes to these extra IRS crackdowns on tax cheats. What about the costs? What about the cost to the banks of complying, of having to inform to the IRS on every transaction for $600 or more? How much is that going to cost? You know, Janet Yellen kind of shrugged it off. She said, well, the banks are already sending out 1099s. Well, that's true. And that costs the money, but that's simply one form per year. And all they're doing is reporting on the total amount of interest that was paid. I mean, it doesn't give any particular information to the government about what the bank was used for, about what the particular customer may have purchased using that bank account. It's just how much interest they earned. And of course, nowadays, nobody even earns any interest on the checking account. So it's really not a big deal for the banks to send those forms out on an annual basis. But who knows how often the banks are gonna to have to report these $600 transactions. Is it gonna be as they occur on a daily basis? Or is it a report that they're gonna file monthly, quarterly, annually? Who knows? But there's gonna be a lot more information contained in these filings than simply how much interest was paid. It's gonna require a lot more work on the part of the banks. They're probably gonna to have to hire a whole staff in order to comply with this new regulation, where are they going to get the money? Obviously, they have to raise the costs of having checking accounts, particularly the smaller accounts. I mean, a lot of banks probably barely make money on these small checking accounts because of the cost of offering them relative to the revenue that they generate. Well, if now it's going to be a lot more expensive to offer these checking accounts they're going to have to charge customers a lot more to have the checking account, which means some customers are going to get priced out of the market. You have a lot of Democrats complaining about the unbanked, about how a lot of people don't even have checking accounts. Well, as a result of this new onerous regulation, a lot more people are going to get priced out of the banking system because they're not going to be able to afford the added costs of having an account that complies with with this new regulation. And of course, those that can afford to maintain their bank accounts are gonna be paying more money. Checking accounts are gonna be more expensive. Either the annual fees will be higher or the banks are gonna increase the fees per check or they're gonna increase the fees for bad checks, insufficient checks, return checks, all that stuff is gonna get more expensive Thanks to the government. So the government can complain about how expensive banking is, but it's the government that is the reason that the costs are so high. And so now not only do consumers have to deal with the added costs associated with all the inflation that the Fed is creating, they're also going to have to deal with the added costs that the government is imposing on the banking sector by way of higher fees for their bank account. So it's going to cost Americans more money to buy stuff. And if they pay for that stuff using their bank account, it's also going to cost them more money to pay those higher prices. I want to turn my attention to the markets because today was the last day of the month and also the last day of the third quarter. And we ended a down month and a down quarter On a decisively down note, the Dow finished the day down 546.8 points. It closed pretty much on the low of the day. In fact, all of the major stock market averages finishing the day near their lows, all of them in the red. Going over the numbers, the Dow ended up down 4.3% on the month, and it ended up down on the quarter, about 2%. Only the Dow and the Russell 2000 were down for the quarter, although all of the indexes were down during the month of September. Russell 2000 was down 4.6% on the quarter, not as bad on the month, down 3%. But it's interesting that the index that was the weakest during the quarter is the index that's most closely associated with the U.S. economy because it's basically all domestic stocks that are more sensitive to what's going on in the United States, not outside the United States. The S&P, though, down 4.8% on the month, a weaker month than the Dow, although on the quarter, the S&P finished positive, but just barely up two-tenths of 1%. The biggest loser on the quarter was the NASDAQ, and it's those big tech stocks in the NASDAQ that also drove down the S&P. The NASDAQ down 5.8% for the month, although it did manage a 1% rise on the quarter. So all that damage really happening in the recent month. And this is where I think we're seeing that shift back out of momentum stocks into value stocks. And I anticipate or expect that that trend will continue into the fourth quarter. And of course, tomorrow we begin the notorious month of October. And though October is not really the worst month for stocks, I think it typically is September. And this month was certainly no exception. But October is where you have those huge crashes. The October 1987 crash happened in October and several other big declines, including the big drop back in 1929 that ushered in the Great Depression. That decline was in October as well. So a lot of ominous big drops Happen in October. So typically, investors get a little nervous. It's kind of like Halloween comes early. It's October 1st. People start getting scared about a big drop in the market. And we'll see. Certainly, the markets are poised for a big drop. And in fact, if the Fed reiterates that it is going to start the taper, If it basically says it's on and we're starting in December and continues to talk tough about fighting inflation, if Powell ends up going back to being less dovish than he was today, it's certainly possible we can have a big drop in October in the stock market. Certainly, we can have a big drop in the bond market. And generally, it's weakness in bonds that precipitates weakness in stocks. But again, It seems like Powell is very cognizant of those risks, again, including the risk that he doesn't get reappointed. And so he most likely does not want to do anything to cause another stock market October crash. Looking, though, at some of the other indexes, look at the gold stocks. They really got beat up on the month and on the quarter. The GDX, which is the larger gold stocks, 9.5% drop on the month. For the quarter, the index was down 13.25%. But obviously, the lion's share of the damage done in the recent month. The junior gold stocks, the GDXJ, they fared even worse, down 11.5% on the month and down a whopping 18% on the quarter. Meanwhile, gold didn't do that bad. I mean, it did have a weak month. It was down 3.2% on the month. But remember, that is a smaller drop than the Dow, than the S&P, than the NASDAQ. It's pretty much on par with what we saw in the Russell 2000. But if you go back to the beginning of the quarter, gold is only down just shy of 1%. So not even a 1% drop in the price of gold led to a 13% drop in senior gold stocks and an 18% drop in juniors. Again, this is a huge overreaction in the miners, which is why I continue to pound the table on why these stocks are such good buys, because traders have run from these stocks in anticipation of a falling gold price, yet that gold price decline has yet to materialize. For all the bearishness on gold, gold barely dropped by 1% during the quarter. And I think it's setting itself up for a huge rise. Even though gold and silver prices were down on the month and the quarter, they finished the last day of September on a strong note. Gold was up about $32 an ounce today, closing back above $1,700. dollars I think, is where we closed. Silver up 67 cents $0.2219. The opposite of what happened yesterday, gold was down, I think, just over 20 bucks yesterday. Silver got slaughtered. It was down about 80 cents. And while silver didn't completely recover yesterday's losses, gold more than made up for those losses and finished positive over the two days. In fact, gold managed to end the week slightly positive despite some pretty big intraweek sell-offs. But that strength in gold did not provide relief for the miners again, because even in a week where the price of gold was up about half a percent, the GDX fell 0.6% and the GDXJ, those junior miners, was down one and a half percent on a week that the price of gold was higher by about half a percent. So these gold stocks, not only do they have to price out the decline in the price of gold that they already priced in, but now they have to start factoring in the increase in the price of gold that we're going to get instead. So they have a long way to go just to catch up, let alone go to where they need to be based on where gold prices are likely to be. So I think this is a big head fake. I think a lot of weaker hands were flushed out of the market in Q3. And I expect those people will really regret having sold their gold stocks in Q4. Because I think if we do have a weak stock market, I think we'll have a strong gold market and an even stronger market in gold mining stocks. But if the market doesn't go down because the Fed saves it by sacrificing the dollar, if the Fed comes clean on the fact that it's not gonna be hiking rates or certainly not even tapering, then I think gold goes up even more and gold stocks explode. Now, turning to the bond market, yields backed up on the month, the yield on the 10-year went from 1.3 to 1.53, still very low and not that much higher than we ended the second quarter at 1.44. On the 30-year, again, yield rose on the month from 1.3 to 2.09. But if you go back to the end of the second quarter, the yield was 2.05. So really not much movement yet in the bond market. The emphasis on the yet, we'll see what happens in the month ahead and the quarter, because there is a lot of risk that interest rates could really back up. And I think to diffuse that risk, that's why the Fed won't be tapering, because to the extent that the Fed does taper, that will simply add to the upward pressure on bond yields. something that the Fed does not want to do. Dollar index was strong on the month, up 1.75%, but on the quarter, the gain was only 2% which pretty much means that almost all of the quarterly gain occurred during the month in September. And again, all of this was based on Fed rhetoric, the expectation that the taper is about to start, but more importantly, that the Fed may actually raise interest rates sooner rather than later because it's finally acknowledging that inflation is a bigger threat than the Fed believed and that if inflation persists it may have to use its tools to fight it. I think that's been factored into the dollar but what hasn't been factored in is that the Fed has no intention of using its tools and I think the testimony that Powell gave today supports that line of thinking, which means the dollar should be giving up its third quarter gains in the fourth quarter. One market, though, that was very strong on the quarter was the oil market. Oil prices up 9% on the month, ending today just below $75 a barrel, up again today. Even as all these stock markets were down, the price of oil continued to move up, although its quarterly gain is only about 3%. Because remember, oil prices had already moved up a lot before the quarter began. And in fact, we had a pretty decent correction in the price of oil during this quarter. That correction, of course, has been entirely erased. And now we've moved on to new highs. And I think oil prices are going significantly higher in the fourth quarter. In fact, we got an announcement today out of China, or we found out that the Chinese government is instructing Chinese companies to load up on oil now to make sure that they're fully supplied going into the winter, this is going to put even more upward pressure. Later in the day, we got some rumors, maybe Saudi Arabia would open up the spigots a bit to accommodate. You know, I wouldn't be surprised if the Chinese made a deal directly with the Saudis to buy whatever extra production they can bring on stream. And in fact, look what's going on all over Europe. Oil prices up, natural gas prices way up. This is creating a huge political problem in Europe. And, you know, for all the talk about how the Fed may have to tighten, I think it's the ECB that's going to be doing the tightening because I think there's going to be a lot of pressure from the Bundesbank on the ECB not to allow this inflation to continue to permeate throughout all of Europe. There is going to be an outrage against these price increases. And while I think the Fed won't raise interest rates, Because of rising inflation, I think there's a greater likelihood that the ECB will with pressure from the Bundesbank and nobody is really talking about that. In fact, all of the discussions now about the breakdown of the global supply chain and all the bottlenecks, we got a perfect example of this problem today with earnings from Bed, Bath and Beyond. I mean, they came out and they shocked the street with how bad their numbers were going to be. At one point this morning, shares of Bed, Bath and Beyond were down 30%. I mean, in the first five minutes of trading they were down 30%. Now, we spent most of the day pairing those losses, but at the close, Bed Bath & Beyond shares were down 21.5%. And remember, Bed Bath & Beyond was actually a meme stock for a while. I mean, it had a brief moment in the sun as a meme stock, and that stock spiked up above $50 a share earlier in the year. The high was $53.90. And in fact, it went up there. It was around 20 bucks, And it was, I don't know, one day or a couple of days where the stock more than doubled when the Reddit raiders found out about it and pumped it up. Well, look at it now. People paid more than $50 a share. And here we are now barely above $17 a share. It shows you how dangerous it is when you pile into one of these meme stocks. But what Bed Bath & Beyond was warning about was basically twofold. One had to do with the supply chain. The reason that their sales were way down was because they couldn't get the merchandise to sell because of the bottlenecks. So they didn't have the products and so they couldn't sell what they didn't have. And so their sales missed estimates. But also the stuff that they did sell cost them a lot more to buy than they thought. And Bed Bath & Beyond was not able to pass on these widespread cost increases To the consumer at least they haven't passed them on yet which means big price increases are coming for bed bath and beyond customers but what the company is reporting is the problem of the breakdown of the supply chain and inflation's continued pressure upward pressure on costs that ultimately have to be borne by the consumer and what nobody is really talking about is the extent to which the global supply chain really breaks down and changes. The country that is at most significant risk is the United States, because basically this whole global supply chain is centered around supplying America with products that it does not produce. You see, the reason America is able to get away with running a service sector economy is because foreign producers supply us with all the goods that we don't make. Well, if that supply chain breaks down and it's all bottled up, America can no longer count on all those goods being supplied from abroad. Well, we don't have the ability to... To produce those goods ourselves. The rest of the world does. The rest of the world is not as dependent on a global supply chain because they supply their own production. They make their own stuff. America does not. We've outsourced all of that to the rest of the world. And now those chickens are coming home to roost. All of that is now becoming increasingly more problematic And if you think it's a problem now, wait until the dollar really starts to fall because then the problem is going to kick into a whole new gear because not only is that weak dollar going to make it a lot more expensive to produce all those goods over there, but it's going to make it that much more expensive to bring them back here.